Hello everyone, I am back and here's your bi-weekly disclaimer. In no ways we are any experts in these topics. We're unfiltered, but we challenge our mindsets to become better people. We're definitely not role models by any means, but we hope you all can resonate with us. Hey, it's Nick. And this is May. This is Patty. And this is Pema. Welcome to another episode of More Than Just Boba. You can listen to our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Breaker, Pocket Cast, and Anchor Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate us five stars, follow us on Instagram at More Than Just Boba for updates. Y'all, this week we have our first guest, Pema, or should I say, Pema Kunse. Um, and no, we do not pay her. She's actually been a longtime friend of, uh, um, of all of us. We all went to UMass Amherst together, and so Pema, if you don't mind giving a little introduction. Hey, my name is Pema. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm excited to be the first guest on this show. I've been a big fan. Hey. Get it, get it, get it. Hey. Happy Lunar New Year. It's the year of the ox, um, and since we're uploading on Lunar New Year, we thought it would be fitting to talk about this cultural holiday our experiences growing up and celebrating Lunar New Year. And we also wanted to add a little bit of spice to the conversation because not only is it is it Lunar New Year today um, when we're uploading, but it's also Losar. So Pema, do you want to give an introduction to Losar and what that means um, in Tibetan culture? That just means Happy New Year's in Tibetan. Okay. Okay. We wanted to shed some light on how different ethnicities celebrate their own cultural New Year's, such as there's Cambodian New Year, Korean New Year, etc. And we just wanted to bring Tema as a guest to bring to talk about Losar and her Tibetan heritage, since we feel like Tibetans are often left out on the larger conversations concerning cultural holidays. Yeah, so a question for you, Pema. Do you consider yourself APIA or Asian Pacific Islander American? Um... This is kind of like an interesting question. I would say yes and no, just because geographically Tibet is located in Asia. So I do identify myself as Asian, but I would never really put myself in the position of having the experience of an APIA. So I guess what I would like to identify myself is I'm Himalayan, um, which is anyone that's located in the geographical Himalayan mountain ranges. And um, because Tibet's located near like Nepal, India, and China, I feel like there's a lot of um, cross-cultural experience that I have. And with my family being raised in like Nepal and India, I grew a lot of um, like South Asian experience as well. So I would just to basically, I guess, simplify, I would just consider myself Himalayan, Himalayan. Wow. Well, speaking of Tibetan American experience, Tema, what was your first memory of Losar and how did you celebrate it? Yeah, so for me, my first memory of Losar as a kid is um, when we have everyone in the family come together and we would just make loads and loads of kapsa, which is basically considered Tibetan biscuits or cookies. Mm. And that was my very first memory that I remember. And just because of the smell and just like everyone baking it all together. And mm-hmm. I think that was like my most favorite because it was just family bonding. Is it like um, a, is, is it like, like a sugar cookie or, or is it like more like a pastry? Is it like sweet um, or savory? 
I would say it just depends on who makes it because there's people that really like to make it sweet. My family, we just try to keep like a minimal sweet level. Mm. So I would just compare it to like a biscuit, I guess. Mm. But um, in terms of celebration, um, it's a long process. I mean, um, to start off, I think my favorite part is the preparations. So like the Eve's Eve's of New Year or also known as Nishuku in Tibetan, what we would make is like this special dish called Gutu. And which means like, it's like this, um, basically like a barley soup and they have nine specific ingredients in it. Like for example, like barley, meat, like beans and like other ingredients as well. And um, that's kind of like a fortune soup that kind of tells you like how it's like or how your new year would be like. And then there'll be like little signs or symbols inside each little ball of dough. And then we would just like pick out um, each ball of dough and then figure out kind of like what our fortune would be for the new year. Oh, that's so cute. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then um, honestly, usually in the old days, New Year's or Losa would be like a two week celebration. But like now, like living in like, um, like either the States or like, I guess, with people like having work and everything, we try to, I guess, like condense it in one day or like maybe like around three days. So on the first day, which is called like La Melosa, and that means the New Year's for the gods. So that's kind of where um, we would like go to the temple for offerings. On the second day, that's where we usually visit other like family members, um, you know, just give offerings as well. And then that's where we get the money, which is my favorite part. Um, and the third day, <laughs> and the third day is basically like where we set up, um, like the prayer flags and which kind of means that we're starting off into the new year. So Pama, everything that you kind of talked about, like the make, making the soup and doing the offerings to the, to, um, going to temple and doing the offerings, is this something that is very common amongst all to, uh, like Tibetan Americans to do during Losar or is it kind of like some people are, uh, adhere less to some of these activities because I guess for me like when I think about Chinese New Year like when I was little we did a lot of more structured events like going to temple and like having dim sum with family uh, and then over time it kind of just faded out mm-hmm. oh yeah I feel like in my opinion um, I feel like these traditions still <laughs> stay um, like it's still pretty core as like one of the main traditions in our culture. So I feel like um, like prepping for like the altar and like having good with your family, like those are such like fun events that we have, but also it has like strong um, traditional values and of course like symbolism behind it as well. So I would say a lot of the people in Tibetan community still uphold that. Yeah, I see. So. I guess speaking from my experience, I think May and Patty might be able to um, touch upon it or probably feel the same way. Like Chinese New Year was a huge festivity for me. Like I would dress up, I'd like go to Chinese school, there'd be lion dancing. Um, and then I'd go eat in Chinatown and visit my family and both of my Vietnamese and Chinese side. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but as I got older, I guess maybe it's because um, our parents are getting older too and we're not kids like these little celebrations don't have that much excitement anymore but it kind of just like faded out and I like just, we just see family and stuff and like here and there get a red envelope like is that the same experience for you Patty and May? Oh yeah definitely I remember like as a kid we would 
mop the floor. Like, I was forced to mop the floor and clean the whole house. Mind yeah, you. good luck. I was eight years old. Like, I was so young. And they're making me do child labor, bro. Get to work. Get to work. And, like, um, for me, I didn't go to dim sum, but like as I got older, I could relate a little bit to that. But like I was more into temple because my grandma is Buddhist and she's a vegetarian. So we would have like vegetarian hot pot. And that was like my first experience of hot pot in general. So that's why like I hated it growing up because it's like people are like, I love hot pot, but I was, I was like, it's disgusting. <laughs> and then I realized it's because I had vegetarian hot pot. <laughs> Um, definitely agree. I feel like Chinese New Year, um, well, Lunar New Year, and then my family calls it Chinese New Year just because we identify as Chinese. Um, it felt a lot more exciting and there was a lot more to do when I was a kid. Like the whole entire family would um, come up, like come together and like have a meal together and like we would trade like Lysi and like they would make the children like all the kids like say like they're freaking pay their respects to their elders before you can get your red envelopes and mm-hmm. everything and they make you bow it's like oh my gosh I remember process. that yeah. yeah where they're like say like happy new year to your aunt and uncle like wish them like yeah. good fortune prosperous health whatever oh my god etc yeah. yeah like they fucking beat the respect into you mm-hmm. <laughs> but I agree with the sentiment in that that kind of cultural um emphasis and family bonding over culture definitely died out a lot um as I got older but I think it's interesting that you know even with Tibetan culture um being very different from obviously East Asian culture there are a lot of parallels that are being drawn in how we celebrate the new year like we do like temple we do offerings we have like kind of um, dance where you have like your traditional Tibetan dance and then we have like our lion dance etc um, so it's just interesting to see how a different culture um, celebrates it differently but in a similar aspect as well so to kind of build upon like our conversation of how we're celebrating Lunar New Year versus how um, Pema celebrates Losar we really want to see kind of the similarities and differences behind how two different um, ethnicities can celebrate a cultural holiday. Um, and also just to bring in a larger conversation of what it's like to grow up um, Asian American versus Tibetan American. Because I think that when we think about um, growing up as Asian Americans and um, we talk about those stories, a lot of those experiences are centered around being East Asian. And not everyone that um, is falls within the APIA identity or has roots in Asia can identify with East Asian experiences. So we really wanted to use this space to shed some light on what it's like growing up as Tibetan American from our really close friend who is Tibetan American. Yeah, in my opinion, as East Asian Americans, we represent a majority of the Asian American diaspora. So in this aspect, I feel like it's not, it's okay not to constantly um, preserve our all of our like cultural signatures because it's not something that's ever going to die out since we are a majority. So in my experience, I've seen Pema and her family, you know, like place a huge eff- emphasis on celebrating Tibetan holidays and just really holding on to that identity and grasping it. Um, and I think it has to do with the fact that Tibetans are a highly marginalized uh, community. And that's why it's so important to preserve these cultural signatures that they have in order to prevent extinction. 
beautifully said, Nick. I think that like uh, us each us East Asian Americans, we're represented on everywhere. Like, not saying we're represented in Hollywood just yet, but like we are the standard of beauty. We are the standard of, you know, when when people think of the model minority, they think of us because we're East Asian Americans. And like, I think one thing that represented us, like, gave us a gave us East Asians like, a platform was subtle Asian traits. And like, Emma, as a as a, per, a woman of color who identifies herself as a Himalayan uh, American, do you did you feel like you got represented on the Facebook group chat group, or like did you see anything relatable? Like for me, Nick and Patty, I'm pretty sure I can, I can pretty sure say that like we did feel represented in a way. Yeah, I mean, when subtle Asian traits kind of took off, I also like was underneath that like bandwagon as well so I thought it was really funny but I think like as I was on it more and more I really noticed that a lot of the things were more prominent or at least uh, I guess geared towards East Asians when it was constantly talking about very cliche stuff like boba and stuff like that and like that's exactly why I like didn't really like it because I feel like (laughs) so much more to like Asian culture and Asian experience than just boba. I literally is on your name. Yeah, I I remember. I remember when Pama was like, "Oh my god, why are there so many memes just about boba?" And then she like (laughs) hopped off of subtle Asians, and I was like, "I guess the memes have changed now." And then she's like, "So it's not about boba anymore." (laughs) But also, it's so funny because a lot of like the kind of um staples in subtle asian traits like let's say even hot pot like those are things that like we were able to share with you and like part of our culture that we introduced to you um just being friends and like being able to chill and enjoy that too and then also vice versa you introducing like parts of your Tibetan culture to us that have become like very momos. Momos. oh my god oh so my god yeah Pama, can you, can you explain you. can you explain to the audience what momos are um I feel like momos in the grand scheme of things they're just dumplings mm-hmm. but they're um, so good they hit so different and their hot sauce bro it's a it's, whole new level it's the sauce. yeah but um <laughs> yeah momos are um like dumplings Tibetan dumplings but like I guess like what makes it a little different is like the spices that we add and that's where like we add in a little bit of more of like the Indian spice like curry and masala and other things as well and we traditionally eat them with beef you know but um yeah I think momos are like the all-time like staple Tibetan dish like I don't I never met anyone who hasn't liked momos (laughs) um and just kind of like to bring it back because you mentioned that like obviously subtle Asian traits was all fun and games in the beginning but like the more that like you were in the page and like in the group you just like couldn't really find anything relatable or salient to your kind of upbringing in Tibetan American identity. Yeah, what was like the breaking point for you to realize like subtle Asian traits is not for me. Like this is catered to East Asian Americans or East Asians in general. Um, yeah, I think I mentioned it before about like the very shallow perceptions of Asian identity. And then I guess when I was fishing through Facebook a little bit more, I found this group called Subtle Curry Traits or like Subtle Desi Traits, which is Mm -hmm. mainly geared towards um, South Asian experiences. And I related to that a lot more just because uh, my family and like even I, like at a point of my time was raised in like 
India and Nepal. So like we were totally like we understand the whole like uh, South Asian like Bollywood industry and just like all these little small little like pockets in the community or just like how like parents would act and stuff. So like I, I really enjoyed subtle curry chase, but also like I said, like the more that I was like seeing like the memes and other things, it also wasn't didn't resonate to me um, exactly either. So me and my sister, uh, what we did was out of the blue, we kind of started this Facebook page called subtle Pippa traits, Pippa meaning Tibetan. And um, when we initially started it, we kind of did it for like jokes. Like we didn't really care about it. We were just like, all right, let's just start it, make a bunch of random memes, see if people relate. And if they do, that's cool. And if they don't, like it is what it is. It's not a big deal. Um, And honestly, the first month, two months, it kind of blew up. So we were really surprised about that because we, the Tibetan community is very small and, um, small in general so like we were really surprised on how much people could relate and it was also just another nice little niche group where we can connect on like a deeper level I guess where we can question like culture and then like inside community issues or whatever it is um so yeah so we created that and then we also like created like an Instagram page as well called Soto Pippa Traits and a lot of it is just like kind of like light humor where we talk about like mostly just our identity growing up um like I guess usually around this time we'd make memes about like Losar and New Year's and stuff like that so yeah and then it grew I think we have like about I want to say 3,000 followers which is not big okay oh, whoa. Which, is, which is not big but like it feels big because like I said it's just more Tibetan than us community. yeah the Tibetan community is so small so like and we would sometimes get like random messages from people where we'd be like oh this page is great um or like oh like I didn't realize it was just like I thought it was just me so like even for like myself I thought it was so cool that um you know we can relate on like like just like our Tibetan culture and identity and other things as well yeah, I think it's so awesome that you kind of pioneered this this initiative. And it's so fitting because you fucking love memes and like you're such a meme queen. So like this is just <laughs> perfect for you. So like it's just Yo, so that you come out disgusting. to do that. <laughs> it's facts though, it's facts. Um, also, this is just like super interesting hearing kind of your experience with like social media representation I think it's like amazing that you and your sister saw that there was a need for community and a lack of representation and y'all were the bad bitches that created the representation and provided a space and a place for your people um and kind of one question for me up right now (laughs) it's it's like facts though it's so awesome even little things like an online community can make people feel so much more connected and make people feel like their experiences are that much more valid and that much more seen. And that goes a long way into just spreading culture and community and connections. So like as something as simple as just like an Instagram page that has, you know, more clout than we do right now, which is amazing. (laughs) Like, I think that that's so fucking awesome. Um, and I mean, I just fucking love hyping up my friends too. Like, I think all my friends are fucking amazing. Um, but also just a question that we want to pose is you talked a lot about how 
you know, when you're in subtle curry traits and subtle, um, subtle Asian traits, like you couldn't really find a place or find, um, like, um, relatability, um, strong relatability within those kind of groups. So when you're kind of living in a world that's dominated mostly by East Asian and South Asian narratives, like how, where do you feel like you fall on that spectrum? Like, how do you kind of balance, um, those influences that, influences that you have from both ethnicities into, you know, what is uniquely your Tibetan American identity? Yeah, so I think to speak on the grand scheme of things, um, I think just being an Asian American in general, I noticed that it's just hard for a lot of people in maintaining balance between their identity and then while living in like American society or the environment itself. But um, I think I noticed through I guess most of my friends being either um, because most of my friends are East Asian and South Asian and I've been um, exposed to that community a lot that um, it's not so much that I've had like I've struggled in finding my way but it's more of just like picking out um, each groups and then kind of just like more of an additive with already the cultural backgrounds that I do have so like I, like, I love getting hot pot with my friends, but I also love like catching a Bollywood film as well. And I think that's like the beauty of it as well. Like everything is more of an additive instead of like, we're trying to like pick and choose or what's more dominant. Mm-hmm. And um, I think growing up and I have to give props to like my parents, like my Balanama, they really instilled a um, strong foundation for me and my siblings as well to just take great pride in my Tibetan identity and um, to make sure that we instill like not only traditional practices, but also the core value of language. And um, not saying I'm the best at Tibetan language, but I'm trying to learn myself and try to get better. But, and I think I also lucked out by having um, a really strong Tibetan community, um, just growing up in general, going to Tibetan school, going to, performing art school and dance and everything where I've always felt very grounded in what my cultural roots are which I feel like I am very lucky and privileged in that sense because I know not everyone um, or I guess like later on in life people kind of find the struggle between finding pride in that but um, yeah overall I think the cross-cultural experience I think is what makes it even more great and just to like the intersectionality behind it as well, where you can just find, um, even though we have different cultures, I noticed like small things like family values or just like the admiration of food and stuff is all the same. And I think um, just having the core values stay the same. I think that's what's, um, I guess, like maintains my relationship with my friends and like other people outside of the Tibetan community, like just as strong, if not stronger. That's like so beautifully said, Pema. I just, sometimes I think about my experience and my intersectionality between different identities that I have. And I find myself just like stuck and torn between those two. But like the way that you talk about it, about how these different experiences with different groups of people are additives to who you are as an identity, because you have have such a strong foundation as to who you are. I think it's so admirable. And like, I really love that. Oh, thank you. 
Another thing that I kind of want to touch on too is when, Pema, you mentioned how there's a really strong emphasis on um, learning Tibetan language. And like, I see it like how in your everyday life, you literally set your language on your phone to Tibetan, <laughs> which honestly, I think is so dope. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's just so interesting because reflecting on my kind of experience growing up as Asian American slash Chinese American, language wasn't always the most salient part of my culture, right? Like, I think it's such a common experience um, as an Asian American to feel a disconnect to your own language, whether it be like Chinese or Vietnamese or Korean even, where a lot of us like grew up speaking that as our first language and lost a lot of our fluency and proficiency you know as we grew older and like now like a lot of us like only speak English or you know we can listen more than we can talk um in our own language and it's just so interesting that at least like from your perspective as as a Tibetan American you put so much emphasis and also effort and time into being literate like being able to read write and speak in Tibetan yeah, I mean, I think for me personally, like like I said before, a lot of the influence just came from my parents. And um, like for Tibetans in general, because there's not many of us, we're a very small community and like um, we're very marginalized as well. I think one of the core things for any communities to survive is the basic of um, communication and language, which is key. And um, I now I'm just bringing in historical context to it, but like ever since Tibet lost its independence um, from China being like occupying it in 1959, one of, and till this day, Tibet is still underneath the CCP regime. Mm-hmm. One of the Let key things, yeah. And like one of the key things on why like Um, millions of um, Tibetans were killed and tortured was um, like religious freedom and also because of not being able to practice and teach uh, Tibetan language and literature. And I think that's one of the key privileges I have living out here in America where um, people in Tibet, they do not have the opportunity to speak in their own language or they're being sent to um, schools where they have, where like I think it's Mandarin, yeah, Mandarin is the core language. And the only times they can speak Tibetan um, is usually in secretive, which is like in their home spaces. But in here in America, or at least me growing up, like, or even in India and Nepal, we have the ability to just speak to whoever in our language. And I noticed that's one of like the greatest privileges um, and actually be the voice to like talk about our experiences of being Tibetan and just having the the ability to learn. And um, I think just for me, I I just found that like one of, I guess my biggest motivations to maintain, I guess, for my culture, because another big thing is like, I noticed within each generation is that less and less kids are becoming less fluent in Tibetan. And I know it's really hard because like adapting to like uh, American society or like Um, other situations as well but I think or I hope that our um, youth would come and like kind of I guess in a way just um, really focus on language being one of the key things because that isn't a privilege that not many people have. 
Yeah, I think it's really interesting how you bring up language as such a obviously key component in culture. And for at least a lot of Asian American identities, like we can still feel just as Asian American, even if we don't speak the language or we can relate, right, and express our culture just the same, even if we don't speak the language obviously in different like contexts like language is a big thing but that's a huge privilege that like you know east asians and other api a identities have Mm -hmm. yeah like for us like i feel like for me patty and nick we're able to go to dorchester and grab a ballet fun me and then like still feel vietnamese Mm -hmm. and still feel valid because we ate this and grew grew up with this but even though we may not be fluent or speak vietnamese we know what what part what is what is it like to be Vietnamese partly or in go to Chinatown for dim sum and then order ha gao shu mai like we we know the food we know the <laughs> yeah. and like and then we would still feel part partly Chinese as well and still feel part part of the community yeah I mean like I noticed that even though I love my culture and my community so much one of the biggest flaws is identifying um quote like who's more tibetan enough and Mm. just like the comparison of like who is considered you know the true authentic tibetan which is complete bullshit because there's like you know you can still be take pride in your identity and claim your identity um in different ways and i think that's a really toxic divide that we have in our community at least for the tibetan community i guess for me that's so interesting um do you feel like the the divide comes from like the language barrier or other aspects of like um the tibetan identity that people like claim or don't claim that causes kind of like this hierarchy of who's more tibetan and who isn't oh 100 percent i think those um or at least from what i've seen because i grew up in mostly my whole life i grew up in um like america um I think like language is one of the key things that divides um, what we call the Western Tibetans and from other Tibetans that grew up in India and Nepal predominantly. Um, Just because uh, our language usually isn't our strong suit um, for those raised in the West, um, that doesn't apply to everyone. I'm just like speaking on a very general basis, but um, yeah, and I remember growing up like I always got picked on because, or they would call me like, oh, like the American girl or something like that, even though I am Tibetan, you know, but it's because of my language not being strong enough or like a little bit of an accent I hold, an American accent I hold. And it's a little degrading, you know, like I think a lot of it comes Mm -hmm. from like um, the older generation Mm -hmm. and it just creates this divide between literally people like those who live in the West and then those who live in like India and Nepal and I feel like with our community so small there is absolutely no need for even more of a division. Obviously with the amount of time we're recording can never you know have it can never cover enough information about Tibetan culture. So Pema is there like any resources or any links or organizations you can tell us about about Tibetan culture for, for us to be more informed? Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of like so many information that you can get, but just to 
name a couple off the top of my head is um, studentsforafreetibet.org. If you want to learn more in terms of like the political end of Tibet, um, I guess culture and experience wise, machik.org is really great. Um, I have another good Tibetan friend. She has a podcast called Naturally Nosy. And um, if you want to learn more about the Tibetan experience, you can also um, go to TibetanResettlementStories.org, specifically Voices of Boston. And there's so many other dope Tibetan businesses and um, small businesses and orgs out there. But, you know, I, there's only so much that I could, you know, shout out. Yeah, obviously, we will link all these resources in our descriptions for you guys to check it out. Thank you so much, Pema, for taking the time to be a guest on our podcast and also sharing all of these amazing resources and for lastly, sharing your story. So now that we know that the Tibetan identity is so salient to you, I guess I want to know, like, who is Pema outside of your Tibetan American identity? Tell us. (laughs) Well, first off, um, no, thank you guys for just inviting me and being the first guest. Like, I'm honestly so honored. I'm a big fan. Um, this is besides the fact that you guys are my friends, but um, yeah, this podcast is great. Um, anyways, I guess who I am, I'm still figuring it out. Of course, I feel like um, there's a she lot of things. Songwriter, the other activate, activate. <laughs> <laughs> but um, for me, I'm still like trying to figure out where I'm at in terms of career and stuff like that as well. But I guess on a very general note, I would consider myself a creative. I really enjoy um, the arts, like creating things with my hands or like I enjoy writing a lot because that's a way of, I feel like I'm not good at speaking. So like, that's a good way of me like expressing how I feel. But yeah, I'm in the grand scheme of it, I'm still figuring myself out. <laughs> so yeah. She a lover, a sister, <laughs> a fighter. A daughter. She's a poet too. <laughs> Ew. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of More Than Just Boba. Uh, We listed all the resources that Pema mentioned in our podcast description. Definitely check them out. They're awesome. Um, And please remember to give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can contact us at morethanjustboba at gmail.com or DM us on our Instagram at morethanjustboba. Bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs> Guys, me and Pema made a song freshman year. <laughs> oh my God, release yeah. it. Drop the track. Drop, Drop the track. Not gonna lie, no though, it was both. a banger. It was a banger, banger. <laughs> she's, Only she's real a creative. <laughs> a creative, exactly. She's she an artist. She got them streams on Spotify. I told you, I'm a writer and a creator and a producer. <laughs> Yeah, she knows how to with a P1000. <laughs> and I literally skip our chem exam, like chem study exam, like the day before our chem exam to write a song. And we still we still did a good job on our exam. So <laughs> I mean, like, um, if we get 30,000 listeners, um, if we get 10 listeners, we'll drop the album. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, if we get 10 five-star ratings, we're gonna they're gonna drop the freaking record we'll drop it five star I- ratings? Are you, can, we, can we get it to 55 star ratings and we'll get it out <laughs>